invited her onto the show, and so please. All right. Well, I also wanted to just um, give a little shorter introduction to some of your work, uh, Helen. Um, we came across you through um, Mikhail Kulikov's uh, anime and manga studies page. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's someone uh, who kind of recommended you to us. And uh, looking at your website, uh, Helen M. Or sorry, Helen McCarthy. WordPress. Um, it looks like you are basically a scholar of Japanese animation, comics, pop culture. Um, you have published several books on these subjects, including it looks like uh, a few that talk about Miyazaki in particular. Um, and it looks like you've also got a pretty robust industry, a uh, cottage industry of, of making stuff. Um, and that you sort of are interested in in that handcrafted component um, of culture as well. And so I think that there's a few interesting ways in which your work might kind of line up with, um, intersect with the kind of things that we're interested in. Um, we talk a lot about um, traditions and mythologies as well, uh, not in terms of made objects so much as in terms of information and ideas. Um, but maybe just to start out with, you could kind of give us an idea of, of how you first got interested in Japanese culture in particular, and in um, uh, comics, in art, in in that sort of, of world. Um, and then we'll kind of go from there. Right, That's that sounds like a really good and really interesting way to, to dive into things. Um, Japanese animation came to me relatively late in my process as an artist. In 1981, I met a guy and he was an illustrator, a fine artist, and he's still my partner. Uh, so we obviously hit it off, but he just graduated and he just got back from his graduation trip to Europe with a group of friends, also artists and illustrators. And on the island of Mallorca, which is a Spanish island, they'd found animation on TV late at night that was like nothing they'd ever seen before. And of course, they'd seen some of the translations of anime that had been sold in Europe since the mid to late 70s. But at the time, nobody knew that they were Japanese because they were just presented in local languages. Hmm. So they sat down and saw a, what turned out to be a Mazinger Z giant robot all-nighter. And you can imagine for illustration and, and art graduates from England in the 80s, this just blew their minds. It was like nothing they'd ever seen. No form of narrative storytelling that they'd had any exposure to had come anywhere close to this. So they all came back raving about this stuff. And of course, with, with suitcases and travel bags full of whatever they've been able to buy in the local area, comics, magazines, toys, anything. And when Steve and I met, he showed me all this stuff and he said, you know, we've worked out that this stuff is actually Japanese, that this is a Japanese cartoon and it's based on a Japanese comic, but we can't find anything about it. Now, at that time, I worked for the British Library. So I thought, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, got this. I am in one of the great libraries of the world. I have professional access to its catalogue. No problem. Was I ever wrong? There was virtually no material on Japanese animation in the English language. I went to the British Film Institute Library, where we also had professional connections through the British Library. They had virtually no material on Japanese animation. The best we could do in English was a few lines in a, a major world histories of animation and so on. And we're literally talking five line paragraphs. And they basically said Japanese animation, loads of junky, cheap, kiddie stuff for Saturday mornings, except for this guy, Tezuka, who does some art stuff that's okay. And that was it. Wow. So I thought, no, I am going to write a book about this. If nobody else will write a book about it, I'm going to write a book about it. And that began my journey. Now this was late 1981. If I say to you that my first writing on anime was published in the late 80s and my first book on anime, my first um, 
actual bound professional ISBN was published in relation to the film season in 1992. And my first actual main, mainstream bookseller book was published in 1993. As you can see, it took me 12 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that was a journey. That was fun. But, but for me, it's always been about the challenge of making it possible to make your work. I mean, I, I started making, and you mentioned that I, I'm a hands-on maker. I'm interested in textile history, and I'm interested in textile production. And as a result, I do embroidery. I did a book on, on embroidery called Manga Cross Stitch. I make historical dress reproductions. I've done cosplay since before it was called cosplay either here or in Japan. Um, I make both science fiction and historical dress. And it's, it's a passion with me to look at the outline of something, the background story of it, the mythology of it, and work out how that came to be through the physical fact of its making. And so that's why I was so keen to know more about anime, not just what is the story, what is the title, what are the characters, but who's making this stuff? What technology are they using? How are they making this stuff? How are they reaching their audience? How are they marketing this stuff? The whole totality of it is, and it's interesting how similar that journey is, whether you're talking about the production of a fabric that's imported from Venice, Venice in the 1400s to London, and the production of a cartoon that's imported from Japan in 2019 into the USA, China, Siberia, Poland, Italy, all virtually simultaneously. It's so one interesting thing about this that comes to mind for me, at least, is to do with this translation question um, and this kind of diffusion question that's connected with it. Um, how how do you go about studying uh, sort of Japanese culture without a, a knowledge of Japanese language and what kinds of ways can you enter into a, a culture without knowing their 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 words? You know, and and sort of what 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 kind of a feel do you get for them um, just just through those kind of aesthetic touches? A lot depends on the culture. I mean, I'll come to that in a moment. But it's easier today than it has ever been to enter a culture with no knowledge of the language. I mean, my Japanese is at basic tourist level. I read very slowly, but because I have enormous patience and also kind friends who help me out, reading isn't an issue. But when you're standing in a street, let's say, and you're trying to find the way to this temple or this restaurant, and not only do you not understand the language, but you can't physically read, identify the signs in which the language is written, you do have a problem. You know, that, that is the case. And luckily, in the case of many Asian cultures, and, and Japan is one of those, people are basically both very hospitable and very kind, and they wish to present their country well. And so if, 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 you're, if you're white and you're standing on a street in Japan looking lost, I can virtually guarantee that within 30 to 45 seconds, someone will approach you and ask you if you're okay. Mm. And very often they will ask you in English, or French or German, if you're okay, because they'll assume that those are the languages you're likely to be bringing to the table. Uh, but somebody will come up and indicate to you somehow that they are happy to help you. And that, of course, makes life much easier. But now we have so many wonderful phone apps. We have so many marvelous guidebooks by people who've been there, been there before and done it before. We have so many ways of accessing knowledge that is actually easy to navigate a country but the problem that that gives us is that we therefore believe it's easy to understand a country. And that's, mm. that's another wow. thing altogether. And see, that's something I wanted to ask you about, because it, it sounds sort of like anime and Japanese culture sort of took over, took over your life in the 80s. Like you sort of got sucked in and you, you went down the rabbit hole, like you said in the pre-show. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to connect that also to the sort of notions of mythology and culture we were talking about what do you what do you think and I this is sort of a big question but what do you think the the essence of that consuming was what is it about um anime and Japanese media 
and and their culture do you think that that had such a hook for you that drew you in that made you want to not only you know watch and write books but also you know make figures and buy, uh you know really immerse your life in, in this this culture and this art well it wasn't so much immersing my life because i had quite a lot going on that carried on alongside it and has carried on mm -hmm. since i had my own artistic practice um, I had my textile history practice. I was working with a medieval recreation group and doing quite a lot of, of quite serious technical study with them. Um, I had my job at the library and, and I had all sorts of other things going on. But I'm an enthusiast. I don't see the point of giving time to something unless I love it. Time in, in our lives is very limited. We have one lifetime. And we have a lot of things that we have to do in that lifetime, not least all the boring stuff like sleep and, and you know, all that stuff. So I never spend time on anything unless I am passionate about it. And when I'm passionate about it, I want to assimilate as much as I can. So for me, it was a process of meeting as many people as I could who understood something about Japan to try and access it. Now, that for me was um, people in Europe because I went to a French school, so I spoke decent usable French and read French well. Um, I can get by in Italian more easily reading than speaking. Uh, Spanish is, is, is a, a more complex language for me than those, but there were people I knew in Spain who spoke English, so that was good. And also, of course, I had lots of American friends through, through other things I did, through, for instance, Star Trek fandom, which I was part of. And so I was able to get those people's take on, on Japan and on anime and on anime fandom. But that, of course, was all, it was outsiders. It was like standing in a hall of mirrors at the circus. Mm. You're looking around and all of these mirrors are more or less distorting. And you have to keep in mind that every single mirror is not allowing you to step through to the reality behind it. It's giving you, with the best of intentions, with, with the best of, of goodwill, it's giving you a little distortion because it's filtering something through another culture. And Japanese people... It's hard to generalize about a whole nation, but Japanese people do have a tendency to be quite private people. Um, they won't come out in your face and tell you their whole family history and everything about them straight away. They have good manners and they're generally quite reserved. And so Japanese people will sometimes tend to give foreigners the Japan they expect rather than the Japan that exists. So it's difficult to actually get your head in there. There's, there's the mythology of Japan that we create. There's the mythology of Japan that anime and manga and games create. And there's the mythology of Japan that the Japanese create for foreign consumption. So you are sinking through layers of mythology. And of course, as a scholar, what you're always trying to do is get at the truth or the truths because there are multiple truths. So that makes it really interesting. That is that is super interesting, and I wonder, kind of, with respect to that, how you think the um, the rise of popularity of anime, uh, this this art form, um, more or less distorted our our sense of Japanese culture, of Japanese uh, stories, and how much how much does anime sort of feed on itself rather than really drawing from um, deeper uh, cultural influences? There's a lot of that because, of course, the other thing that we tend to forget is Japan doesn't exist in a sealed box with a feed that or... sends out anime and manga. Japan gets influences from the rest of the world. And ever since the 1850s, 1860s, when the West essentially first invaded Japan, Japan has taken on board all kinds of influences and ideas from outside and assimilated them and taken a Japanese take on it. Japan has, has been crazy, for example, about the English school story and the European method of education since the late 1800s. Tom Brown's School Days, a classic novel about life in the 19th century in an English public school, was translated into Japanese before the end of the 19th century. It was difficult for them because they had no idea how to translate the terminology of the game of cricket, which, of course, the Japanese didn't play, but they did it anyway. And from that, the Japanese built a mythology about how English schooling and European schooling is. And so they were taking in 
our world and making their mythologies about that and that's partly coming back out to us in anime every japanese high school anime that you see essentially has its roots in european education systems because that's where the post-war japanese education system essentially comes from from europe and from america so what we're seeing that we think is oh uniquely japanese actually isn't uniquely Japanese at all. It's as the Japanese see it, but it has influences from outside. Unless you go to the headwaters of the Amazon and find a tribe that has never had contact with any other human society whatsoever, nothing is ever going to be uniquely this or that. And I think the mistake we make in Japan is a mistake that again comes from way back in the 19th century, when the first people to explore Japan, began to package Japan for export. And in particular, there's a guy I'm crazy about, uh, a fourth generation Swedish immigrant to England called Charles Wergman, who went out to China and then on to Japan as a correspondent for the Illustrated London News and just somehow never got round to coming home. And he set up a whole pile of businesses, one of which was a photo studio with a guy called Felice Beato, and they traded in taking photographs, which, of course, was the hot new technology. It was the Internet of its day and making up photograph albums and selling them on to the diplomats and military and business people who'd come to China and come to Japan so that they would have a souvenir to take home. And when they sat down and said to their, their families and their friends, you will never believe this country, they could show them pictures. And so Beato and Wergman and all the other Westerners who went in there doing drawings and doing pictures began to edit the image of Japan into the way that we essentially still see it, into a country of geisha and maiko and samurai and retainers and temples and small towns. And now, of course, in the 21st century, we've added big cities and high schools and all that stuff. But back in the 19th century, they created this idea of Japan as an exotic fairyland. And we've never really managed to step away from that. that. That makes me wonder two questions. A, to what extent is it the mythology of a culture that a culture attempts to portray rather than the mundane actuality of it, uh, especially in Japan, but potentially in, you know, more of them, but also um, just because of the idea of cultural transmission and the admixture of ideas and media, a hypothesis that Wes and I have been investigating while we've gone through the corpus of Hayao Miyazaki and now Final Fantasy VII is that with the transmission of media that people throughout the entire world can use, like the creation of video games or anime or TV shows, movies, um, and with the sort of mixture, not only of cultures, but also of cultural stories, um, that these, these media may be paving the way of portraying a new world mythology, that there may be elements within it, like you were saying, of the British school, also of traditional Japanese culture as well, and that uh, it's almost as if anime, and I wonder if this is too big a question, if anime is providing a bridge between our cultures or, or rather forging a new sort of middle or amalgamated culture or mythology between the West and the East. I think it's certainly helping us to make those bridges. And, and what you said about the school story just made me think that you could draw a beautiful triangle between the traditional British literary school story, the Japanese right. animated school story and Harry Potter. That's uh, precisely. We do a podcast on Harry Potter, too. I was thinking the same thing because, uh, a and you can speak to this better than I could, but a claim that I've heard said is that the British love their school stories. Oh, uh, we do. I, I, as a girl, I grew up reading series of school stories by, by, by many, many authors that were you know, wonderful fantasy lands. Most people in Britain don't go to private schools and most people in Britain don't go to boarding schools. And of course, they just devour these stories of midnight feasts and hockey matches and house rivalries. And Harry Potter played beautifully into that. And of course, 
to 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 the to a great extent anime plays beautifully into that idea because when people look for idealized school days and ideal high school life many people would pick something that was kind of a toss up between anime and harry potter wouldn't they yeah sounds right to me that sounds right to me but but, but what what's really interesting is the whole process of mythologization if we can call it that the, the science of making a mythology and that i'm passionate about that one of my favorite british writers um dead now a guy called robert graves who was a novelist a poet a, a screenwriter a very very great writer indeed did a wonderful book many years ago called the white goddess right. a historical grammar of poetic poetic myth and he posited the idea that there was a universal myth of the great goddess to which all poets are linked and to which all poets pay tribute and that you can trace that myth through the analysis of particular celtic and earlier poetry and he was responding to a book by james macdonald fraser called the golden bow which is essentially about mythology and christianity and Fraser, in turn, of course, was was responding to earlier scholars. So there's been a buildup of where does mythology come from through the years? And you can see this in contemporary anime and the work of scholars like Crispin Freeman, who is a voice actor, but also a really great mythological scholar who examines mythological themes in anime and presents on this and, and writes on this extensively. And then, of course, there are scholars who look at Japan as distinct from just pure mythology, um, people like Brian Rue, people like Rachel Matt Thorne, who've been working on anime in Japan in general for many years. And then there are scholars who look at particular aspects of Japanese mythology, like Zach Davison, who did a, a wonderful book on yokai. Lots of lots of good books out there on yokai. So you've got a lot of different people coming at mythological studies and tying in Japan or making Japan the jumping off point. But the interesting thing about a mythology is, as we said with the school mythology, once you start it, it refuses to stay where you put it down. Once you have a mythology, it assumes a life of its own and it moves into other areas and it begins to assimilate other areas. And before too long with modern communication methods where I can write a story today and it can be pirated 35 times before 48 hours have gone by, um, you can actually transmit mythologies all over the world very, very quickly. And we see this happening a lot in modern politics. I mean, both in your country and in my country, there are currently mythological narratives running that are yeah. lining up forces for epic battles against the dark side or the, however you conceive the dark side to be. And those mythologies are being exported around the world. It's, it's just right. a fascinating time to be a mythological scholar. Well, and that's so interesting because I, I, I'm a teacher of Dante, and one of, one, of, one of his fundamental claims seems to be that the Luciferian tendency is to use the rational intellect to sever relationships and connections and groups, whereas um, the divine use of the intellect is to bring people together. And it's funny because a claim that I've often heard by a scholar uh, who's under some fire right now, Dr. Jordan Peterson, is that they're, they, especially in graphic novel worlds, it, there's a major interplay between the audiences and the artists. In fact, if the artists get something too wrong or they make too big of a change, the yeah. audience will react negatively. And that, you know, and just to sort of tie that to the New Testament idea where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. It seems as if they're a what a mythology does is, uh, is sort of produces a group or gives the overarching theme for people coming together in order to, uh, I don't know, embody when they do say cosplay or, or to, to uh, talk about or bring into existence um, ideas that they think are beautiful or wonderful or they love them. Um, it's sort of a general question, but is that what you think of my thought? Do you think that that's sort of the function of the anthropology or the sociology of a, of a mythology? I, I think that I, I, I think that's a good argument. But to me, a mythology has always been a container for meaning. Mm. Yeah. However, we wrap it up, a mythology is a container for meaning. And once you have 
things that mean a great deal to many people put into a package that can be easily conveyed through different societies and different times. What you have mm. is power. Because what you have is the power to influence the interpretation of that mythology. And it was interesting you brought up Dante's Luciferian and, 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 and deific tendencies, because we have a tendency in the West, thanks to centuries of Christianity, to assume that the Lucifer side is bad hmm. and the God side is good. But that isn't necessarily the case. I mean, it's like assuming that chaos is bad and reason is good. Um, Osama Chesica had this in his work. There was a wonderful exhibition in Tokyo, um, I think it was about 1991, a couple of years after his death, that examined his work from the Dionysian and the Apollonian tendency. Hmm. Apollo's tendency being order, reason, light. Dionysus' tendency as the god of wine being chaos, randomness, indulged emotion. Now, those two tendencies are very strong in Tezuka's work, but they both actually produce remarkable work. And if you look at too much Apollonian tendency, you get the far right, you get Nazism, you get the repression of women and minorities. If you look at too much Dionysian tendency, you get chaos, you get militias overrunning the streets, you get individuals setting up their own tin pot republics. What we're always striving for is the balance of dark and light. And mythology sensibly handled enables people to balance dark and light. But mythology used as a tool by people who want to control for whatever reason, sometimes for good reason, not for bad reason, can be a major imbalance in dark and light. One of the interesting things for this at the moment is the TV show Lucifer. I don't know hmm. if, if you guys are familiar with that. but I, I know of its existence, but I haven't seen it. And I'm really interested to see what you think the difference between mythology and ideology is, too. Well, that Lucifer's actually really charming in this, and it's very good on the difference between mythology and ideology, because Lucifer posits that the devil gets really hacked off with hell. He didn't want this job. His dad gave it to him. He comes down to Earth, to Los Angeles, and he decides that Earth suits him because he can be what he wants to be here. He can be free. But of course, like all of us who think we can leave our past behind, he finds that elements of his past follow him and he can't be as free as all that. And there's a whole mythology around it. But the core of the mythology is that Lucifer, in trying to express himself and free himself from family influence and make his own decisions and choose for himself, is actually in the right. And that his family, although they're shown to be people with, with great love and, and his good at heart, but wanting to control, are uh, maybe not, despite being God and all his angels, as good as all that. So it's, it's very interesting, and, and it's, it brings us the crux of your mythology ideology question, because if you're looking at a mythology, and especially if we go back to a lot of the, the, the myths where I started, the Irish myths and the Welsh myths, they're intensely flexible. They very often have many different versions. And a good old Irish storyteller will sit down and say to you, or a Welsh bard will say to you, people have said that um, this king did this or that Cahoolan did this, but other people say that this is what he did. And this is the story that I'm going to tell you. They allow the possibility that we may not always know the whole of a mythological hero's journey that there may be parts of that hero or parts of that journey or parts of that mythology that are impenetrable to us. Ideology says we may not choose to tell you all this, but we know it and we control the knowledge and you will do as we say because we control it. Uh. So for me, ideology is a ringed castle. We're all good on the inside, you're all bad on the outside and you only get in with us saying so. Whereas mythology is a narrow road to the deep north. You start out and you don't necessarily know where you're going. And in fact, when you get there, you don't necessarily go where you've ended up. But anyone can walk that road with humility and strong legs. So to me, mythology is inclusive and ideology is dominant. Mm. It also sounds like what ideology claims is that it is the house. Of Odin being the classic example. Odin hung for three days on the world tree. 
and gave his eye for knowledge. You get nothing for nothing is the first rule of mythology. And if somebody offers you something for nothing, they're probably selling you snake oil. They're the queen of fairyland saying, come with me and party, pretty boy, and I'll show you marvellous things, and she will. But 300 years later, you're back cold on that hillside, never a new you is dead. So mythology is about taking responsibility for yourself, learning caution, knowing that there's nothing for nothing that you have to pay, that that narrow road to the deep north will be an amazing journey, but you may not end it with everything you started out with. I, I want to jump in here with just a few more specific themes and things related to um, Miyazaki's work, since that's the animator we're yeah. most familiar with at this point. Mm -hmm. um, some of what you're describing seems really on target with respect to like uh, Spirited Away, for instance, right? Um, coming into that sort of fairyland atmosphere. Um, and and I think with, with the ideology thing, uh, a lot of that is kind of around the, the edges of a lot of these films, um, like Porco Rosso comes, comes to it a little bit more directly than others. Um, but could you just speak a little bit about, in your studies of Miyazaki, what you see as his um, kind of predominant uh, concerns and, and themes, and what ways in which he um, kind of taps into deeper mythological streams? I think the thing you can see with Miyazaki, and certainly the, the thing that strikes me after... I saw my first Miyazaki film in 1989. So that's like 20 years studying his work, 30 years studying his work. Um, is that Miyazaki's predominant mythology is socialist. Miyazaki is an avowed socialist or was an avowed socialist in his youth. He was a trade unionist, left winger. Um, and he firmly believes that the good of the community and the good of the society is the best thing for people in general. That if we produce a, a society that is fair and balanced for most people, in which everybody has enough to eat and everybody has a job, that will overall contribute to human good. So what you're dealing with here is, is very, very much uh, a commonwealth ideology, as it were. The, the Britain, of course, is inextricably linked with our Commonwealth of Nations. But the idea of Commonwealth goes right back into the 15th and 16th centuries, when you had political thinkers in Britain who started to say Commonwealth, that is the land, the air, the water, the right of every human being to grow crops and catch food and make a living and be able to get by by interacting with nature. That's the idea of Commonwealth and the idea that every human being has a responsibility to be honest and straightforward and helpful to their neighbours and the community around them. Miyazaki's very much an old-fashioned Commonwealth kind of guy. You can see this again and again in Porco Rosso, where the, the community of air pilots is beginning to be fragmented by the political pressures and the social pressures. And you see the community of people being fragmented by the fact that there's no work at all in Italy and all the guys are going off to the States to send money back home. And yet there's this still this strong urge that those who are left behind will pull together as much as they can to help each other out. And you see that, as you say, in Spirited Away, there is, there is a a sense of community around the bathhouse, a sense that everybody's working to keep everybody going, to keep everybody fed. Yes, Yubaba is a total dictator, but she's a total dictator who rules with the consent of most of her employees because she's creating for them a space where they can live, they can make a living, they can make friends, they can have a community, they can be safe. So there's, there's a lot of that community. If you look at Castle in the Sky, uh, Miyazaki did a preliminary research trip for that to North Wales after the miners' strike in the 1980s. And he talks very movingly about uh, the communities that he saw in Welsh mining areas. And he's drawn on that in Castle in the Sky for the community that he creates where the hero Patsu, who's an orphan, grows up orphaned but with a job with a place to live, with adults, keeping an eye out for him. And the whole community sticks together very strongly against any outside incursion. 
And you see it again with the pirate community in Castle in the Sky. Mardola and her boys are shameless thieves. Um, never question what they are. This is what they do. But they're also people with basically quite good hearts who don't take more than they feel that the, the, the party they're robbing can afford and who will put themselves out for a helpless little boy and girl. There's a lot of that in Miyazaki. So to me, his big mythology is that his heroes and his heroines grow to be of use to the community and their mm -hmm. adventures, like Naushka's adventures, are actually all about stabilizing the valley of the wind in a time when big powers are out there. It could be a Vietnam allegory. It could be about a little country squaring up to a big country with terrifying destructive weaponry and trying to find a way to survive. So Miyazaki- fire from the sky. Yeah, exactly. So if, in fact, if you read Naushka as, as a commentary on Vietnam, it's a very, very interesting commentary indeed. Mm. Well, I wanna, well, that, that's very profound. I'd never thought about it that way. And so I'm making quite a few connections based on that. But I also wanna ask you about the sense of nostalgia in Miyazaki's work. I'm also a teacher of the Odyssey and so I have to ask about this, uh -huh. especially in Spirited Away, Corco Rosso, um, um, Castle in the Sky, The Wind Rises, too. Sort of a hearkening back to sort of an Edenic uh, time of, uh, you know, greater gods, at least in the time in Princess Mononoke. And in Spirited Away, you know, these amusement parks that were made during the boom have now gone to rot. And Corco Rosso, you know, there was the war. And now, now this great hero is reduced to being a scum-like bounty hunter. And just what do you think of that sense of nostalgia and where it comes from and maybe even what nostalgia is and whether that's an important part of a mythology? What I think is really interesting, and, and, and you've made two really, really interesting connections there with Porco Rosso and um, The Wind Rises, because there you've got two people who are crazy about flying, two protagonists mm. who are crazy about flight. And beyond flight they're not actually all that engaged in the rest of the world marco in porco rosso doesn't care about politics at all even though everyone around him is getting very exercised about the direction that italy's going in and the rise of fascism and, and the issues around there marco just wants to sit on his island listen to his radio occasionally get in his plane and make enough money for nice meals and good wine and seeing seeing cute women that's it he's he's very very much a guy who's just living what miyazaki describes as the pig's life and he doesn't mean that in a derogatory way he means that most of us or certainly most middle-aged guys like him with the time he did it would quite like to be a pig would quite like to be like marco to have that pressure taken off them and just mm -hmm. be able to live in a really relaxed, really happy way, doing what gives them pleasure. And Jiro in The Wind Rises is seen as someone who is so focused on the absolute beauty of what he's doing that he completely ignores the rise of Nazism. He completely ignores the fact that his wife who adores him is dying alone of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And he lets her run off without even trying to find her to die alone because what he wants is so important to him. I mean, th those, are, those, are, those are very unflinching looks, even though they're wrapped up in, sh in sugar candy. Those are quite unflinching assessments of what these guys are, what this way of life of being in love with your own myth, of being in love with what you want most, can do to the community. And I think Miyazaki's being really profound and, and, and subtle with this in that he's saying, look, here are communities in chaos. Here are things happening that we can see are bad things. Can I, as an artist, just do what I want to do? Can these guys as heroes just do what they want to do? Or do they have more of a duty to think about what does my community need? And you see that at the end of Porco Rosso, where Marco and Curtis decide to give everybody time to get away from the approaching military might, which would throw them all in jail, torture them, disappear them, whatever. 
And they decide to do that by, in a sense, doing exactly what they want to do, punch heck out of each other. But in another sense, by channeling what they desire to serve the community. And I think that's what makes Porco Rosso, although it's a pure fantasy, to me, a much more mature film than The Wind Rises. Because at the end of The Wind Rises, Jiro steps off into fantasy again. Whereas at the end of Porco Rosso, Marco and Curtis are doing their best to save their community. Not just the people they like, not just the people they got on with, but everybody. So in an odd sense, the fantasy about a guy who turns into a pig is a more profound and more mature film than the story inspired by the real guy who built airplanes. That's <laughs> what mythology can do. That's cool. Yeah, it's like the contrast between the historical and the imaginative there. Um, I, I think that's a cool way of thinking about Miyazaki's work as well, talking about him as a, a subtle um, make uh, filmmaker. I I think, could you say a little more about how we can sort of unpack some of that subtlety? Is it, have you uh, ever taught these films like directly in a classroom setting? Is that something that you've thought about or um, see as a, a worthwhile attempt? Or is it better that we sort of access these ideas through entertainment and just kind of come to them uh, more voluntarily rather than being in a classroom setting and discussing them? I think a classroom setting is good for people who have seen those films and want to bring some academic rigor to it. Um, I've taught these films for the Workers' Educational Association in, in Britain and in a number of other contexts, including as a, a guest speaker at uh, the University of Maryland and as a guest speaker in, in Akita at, at um, the Akita International University. Uh, one of the interesting things about it is that with any film, what you get out of it tends to depend on what you take to it. When we say that film has transformed my life, what we quite often mean if we unpack it is that film has confirmed what I already thought. It's quite <laughs> difficult to approach a work of art that slaps everything you believe in the face and be honestly open to it. It takes years of practice and discipline. It's, it's a really good Zen discipline, actually. I, I try and read every couple of weeks newspapers with whose views I profoundly disagree. And I try and watch news media that support causes that I really cannot stand. Because being challenged in that way makes me approach these people who have these views and think, where is your humanity? Not just in a, where is your humanity, you know, outrage sense, but how are you coming at that? Why are you doing that? And I think it's the same with Miyazaki. If we see the films, we can then begin to unpack them academically if we choose to go down that route. But of course, if you don't choose to go down that route, it's absolutely fine to just see the films and enjoy them. Um, what I find interesting about my approach to Miyazaki is that it has changed profoundly in the 30 years since I've been studying him. Mm. And this depends on a number of factors, and I think they're important factors, whether you're studying mythology or a filmmaker or physics or any other topic. First of all, your state of knowledge at the beginning is not going to be your state of knowledge at the end. So the things with which you fall in love in the early stages of your life, while you may remain in love with them, will not mean the same to you as a mature scholar or as a scholar on the verge of death. You may still love them. You may have a nostalgic corner of your heart for them, but no longer get much out of them. You may still engage with them intellectually and find them satisfying, but they will not be the same because you will not be the same. You've gone on a journey that won't have been influenced only by those works, but by other things. And you will also have learned to assess those works in their widest possible context. Let's take, for example, the idea of Miyazaki's feminism. I mean, when I began to look at Miyazaki, there were very, very few people making films in any medium 
that showed women and girls as realistically as he did. And in the animated medium, almost nobody. Disney princesses? I mean, come on. Marvelous films. I love Disney. But that didn't relate to most people's real lived experience as a young woman. Not just because of the mythological trappings, but because of the way that these girls were often expected to react. And you can see that in the way Disney has subtly changed the emphasis of their princesses over the last 15 to 20 years to make them much feistier, much stronger, much outgo more outgoing women who most recently in Ralph Breaks the Internet could critique their own mythology and do that in a sense that teenage girls could accept and pre-teenage girls could accept. So to begin with, way back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was assessing Miyazaki as a director whose female characters were much more in line with the kind of feminism I wanted to see than most other characters at the time. However, over time, I've met Miyazaki. I've read more widely about what Miyazaki has written himself and interviews that he's done with other people. I've seen more of his work. I've read more into his work. And I've seen his work go on an arc from the completion of one great mythological arc, which is how I assess all the work up to Mononoke, to the beginning of work that has no relationship to that mythological arc, which is how I assess the work post Mononoke. And this is purely my own assessment, obviously. But the interesting thing about that is that Miyazaki now appears to me far less feminist and far more an old style patriarchal socialist than I used to think in the heady days of our first love. Because you do fall in love with a new director. I fell totally in love with Miyazaki's films and I am still totally in love with him as an artist. But I no longer subscribe to the idea of him as a feminist because to Miyazaki, I think everything is subordinate to the good of society as a whole. And it appears to me that you can analyze his films to demonstrate that society as a whole is best served when once they've got their magnificent adventuring out of the way, women settle down and become wives and mothers. Which is a very, very traditional reading of what starts out as a very, very revolutionary path. So to me, as a scholar, I've changed. I've made lots of mistakes, of course, and, and we have to be clear about expressing the difference between a mistake that you make as a scholar, either because your knowledge is deficient or because knowledge in the field as a whole is deficient or because the conclusions you come to were right at the time, but later evidence challenges them. Those are mistakes anyone can make and those are mistakes that every scholar does make. And we've all got to fess up to them because that's how you grow. You get better with every mistake you make. But also, you as a scholar mature. You change your mind, literally. You alter your thought patterns. And other influences come into your thought patterns from everything you read, everything you see, everything you do. And so when you go back and reassess some of the things that as a young scholar you, you thought you believed, you find that you're no longer entirely in tune with that young person who wrote that work. And a, a classic example of this is the great British classical scholar, Mary Beard, Professor Mary Beard. Mm. She, she is a wonderful classicist um, and she has been a very, very thoughtful and very, very lucid scholar from her earliest days. And her first publication was a groundbreaking book about the Vestal Virgins, who hadn't been that much studied before her and to whom she brought some revolutionary processes. And that book about the Vestal Virgins has been a classic for, what, 30 odd years? Um, she went back to it, revisited it, looked at it in contemporary knowledge and said, actually, this doesn't work anymore. Now, she was both confident enough and honest enough as a scholar to stand up and say, this work, the foundation stone of my career, doesn't work now. It was fine then. It doesn't work now. We have to revisit it. 
I have so much admiration for that woman because that is what scholars do or what scholars should do. We don't build ourselves. We constantly cannibalize ourselves for building material for the next idea. That to me is the really inspiring, really exciting thing. It's a natural process. It sounds like, yeah, very, very interesting as if it is the trajectory that you transverse during life that uh, gives the meaning to it rather than the conclusions that you draw at any particular point. Um, but yes. one last big question then, and you may have already answered this just through um, your, your measurement system for Hayao Miyazaki post and pre uh, Mononoke, but what is his masterpiece? To me, Miyazaki's masterpiece is and always will be Tonari no Totoro, My Neighbor Totoro. I think yes, it's yes. the perfect film. I mean, if you think of all the films that have been made about childhood by great directors from Ingmar Bergman all the way through the American and European canon, all the way through the Asian canon, there is no other film about childhood, in my view, that goes from a child's eye perspective as perfectly as Totoro. He literally makes us walk in a child's shoes and look at a child's eye level. And it is also the only film I've ever seen about childhood that puts death front and center, right from the word go, but does not either demonize or personify death. Mm. Totoro sees death as something to be feared, but he doesn't see death as an adversary. The movie doesn't conceive of death as the man in the, the black hat that we can shoot if we only find a hero with the right weapon. The movie conceives of death as part of the cycle of life and shows us through the children's reactions that the only reason we fear death is that our understanding of it is imperfect. And that, to me, makes it a breathtakingly great film. I think it, it hasn't had its due in philosophical terms in any movie studies so far. Fantastic. Thank you so much for all of these insights and kind of uh, spending this time with us, uh, Helen McCarthy. Um, we would love to talk to you again once we've, you know, revised and studied up a bit more. Um, and kind of check in as as your work uh, progresses here. Um, but until then, uh, we'll let you go. And, and thanks again for your time very much. Well, I have really enjoyed this talk. It's been so much fun. It is so wonderful to engage with people that appreciate the process of, of scholarship and the process of critical analysis, as well as the actual objects under analysis. And I'd be happy to talk to you again anytime. Um, do please also send me a link for the podcast so that I can promote it on my social media feeds, because there are a lot of people out there who are very interested in this kind of discussion, and I'm sure they'll engage with it. All right. Thanks very much. Wonderful. Thank you very Thank much. You. Bye.